What's up, podcast listeners? It's your boy, Matt Baxter, back with another great episode of the Matt Baxter Show. I am honored on this episode because I'm hanging out with the great Nina Morano, who is an acting coach. She has taught world-famous actors uh, in New York City, but all around the world. One of the times that we were chatting, she was on her way to Thailand to teach for three months. Uh, She's an amazing, amazing singer. She has one of the most elegant individuals that I've certainly ever had on this podcast, but also just spoken to. She tells an amazing story uh, uh, about singing a song uh, and coming back many years later to visit the same place. And the, the the owner still knew her. I mean, just so many, so many cool things. She's a special human being. And certainly uh, for those of you who know me, I'm not necessarily uh, that well knowledge in the arts world. And this has certainly been an episode that I have learned a ton. Uh, and I, I am just honored to hang out with Nina. And she's a very very special human being. So for everyone, I hope you enjoy this podcast just as much as I did. Nina, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. We, uh, we, we first got connected. Um, we had an amazing chat. You've traveled around the world. You're back in New York, I think. Is that where you're at? I am. I live in Manhattan and I'm, I'm based in Manhattan. And uh, between our first chat and, uh, and, and, and your stay back in uh, Manhattan, where were you? Um, well, I was uh, invited to teach in Taipei, Taiwan for three months. I teach a very specific acting technique based on Sanford Meisner, who came out of the American Group Theater, which, which were disciples of Konstantin Stanislavski. That is, um, I'm not going to... Uh, act or pretend like I am uh, a, a complete enthusiast or expert in any space, which is why I'm so excited to chat with you because I feel like I'm going to learn a bunch. Um, but let's let's dive in a little bit. I'd love just to hear your background, your story. I mean, what's led up to sort of everything that you have going on today? I would love the background. Well, um, I grew up in Westchester, New York, which is about, oh, it's about 20 miles up from the island of Manhattan. Um, on Long Island Sound, it's called, which is like a, a, a bay and inlet uh, from the ocean. It's across from Long Island. And I grew up on the water and I grew up in a, a very um, exclusive town, actually, in the 1950s um, and 60s, which uh, but my father was a laborer. He was a butcher. I, my father was Italian and my mother was Ukrainian. So I heard Italian spoke on one side and I heard Ukrainsky spoken on the other side. So I'm an American and my parents are first generation, um, but um, my grandparents were from uh, Eastern Europe and Western Europe. That is amazing. So um, when, so I guess, first off, there's so many cultural questions between um, your two parents. What was that like growing up? Did the did the cultures clash? Did they did they complement each other well? I mean, obviously, there's personalities <laughs> involved with parents, but also there's cultural backgrounds. Walk me through that. Well, um, it's it's yeah, that's a good it's a great question that you're asking. It was intense, Matt. It was intense. <laughs> I come from I basically say. almost a hundred percent Scottish, just for uh-huh. context. And so you have yeah. to. Uh, I have a much greater uh, appreciation when the when there's cultural backgrounds that clash come together unique. So I love it. Well, um, I had very attractive parents okay. um, and, and um, 
my Ukrainian grandmother had come to New York. I'm sorry, I live off of Second Avenue. This is going to pass. Uh, my Ukrainian grandmother lived in Manhattan on 11th Street. And uh, she came when she was 18 in 1913 and never saw her parents again. And um, I'm the youngest of three. I'm a boomer. My brother and sister were born uh, before the World War II and during World War II. And my father was in Battle of the Bulge. He was drafted when he was 31 years old. Wow. So he came back. And um, because he survived the war and he had been injured um, a few times, uh, I was lucky enough to uh, arrive on this planet. And uh, so in a way, the three of us have had different lives, even though we had a very close family. We were very close with our grandparents, our aunts and our uncles. So we had a very uh, tight knit family. Um, but it was intense because my father was uh, a veteran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and basically, I mean, coming back. So how old were you? Well, not, not necessarily age, but like, were you kind of on the, on the younger age when he was coming back and fighting over the war or were? Oh, no, were, no. I, I'm a, I'm a boomer. I was born after. I was that's what I thought. Okay. Uh, I, I was, yeah. I didn't, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's definitely what I thought. Um, so when, you know, coming, you know, him having that experience, was that something that he talked a lot about? Didn't talk a lot about what was sort of that, uh, what was that relationship? Never talked about it. Yeah. Never. That's, no, it's interesting. No. No. I, I've heard no. that about that generation was, you don't talk about it. It's it's quiet. There's a level of respect when it comes to that. That's just fascinating to me. Yes. Well, you know, uh, he lived a few years longer, not just about four years longer than my mother did. And it wasn't until my mother passed in 1994 that my father started talking about the war. We knew a couple of things, but we didn't yeah. know. And then and then he did. But no, no, it's, it's the typical uh, World War Two. Um, no, he didn't talk about the experience. He was so glad to be alive. He, he was, um, oh, he was extremely talented. Um, you know, he was a laborer and he loved to swim. So he lived for his swim from Memorial Day to Labor Day at the beach, Larchmont Manor, where we grew up in a very beautiful area. And um, uh, he, uh, his photogra uh, photography was his hobby and he developed all his own color slides since 1937. Yeah. So I was going to ask, and you brought this up, um, from a military father who is a laborer and a butcher to you, who's a world-class in the arts acting, how did that come to be? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm a singer and, and I don't remember ever not singing. So it's, it's almost like I, I just remember singing my entire life. And my sister, who's uh, uh, 81, um, is a painter. And my brother uh, was a, um, he lives in Louisiana um, and he went to Louisiana to play football and he settled there decades ago and has a family there. He, play the accordion so we we had music and we had art my father was, I was about artistic. to say you guys basically had a little family band going right there <laughs> well we, we had an artist we had an artistic family but my, my yeah. mother was artistic too in her own way but um i i was a singer and i've always been a singer and um my father played sta uh, standards but my italian grandfather who was the head tailor at lord and taylor's for 50 years and lived in the Bronx. That's where my father was raised. Um, he was uh, opera aficionado and had a subscription to the old Met. 
um, you know, this is before Lincoln Center, and um, which my brother and sister had gone to, but I, I didn't. But I got attached to singing standards. So I'm sort of what I'm what you call a stylist, a song stylist. It's 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 in a jazz way, but I'm not a jazz singer. I'm I'm a stylist. I, I sing my own way interpretively. So um, for the audience uh, that doesn't come from this, what is it? What would a standard qualify as? Oh, a standard would be you know uh, um, like a crooner, like uh, like. Um, like you know, what Sinatra sings, or Tony oh, Bennett, it. or 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 Ella Fitzgerald, who was my idol, and Judy Garland, uh, she was my idol too. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So this has obviously become a profession, a passion, a love in your life. What? How? Where did your kind of career take you through this journey of obviously always singing, loving to sing, but now obviously to today teaching one of the most. Um, teaching an incredibly niche focus, you know, part of acting that you do worldwide. What was sort of that transition like from singing to professional and teaching and all that? Well, you know, Matt, you're, you're really opening a can of worms here. Um, <laughs> I've got time. Know, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it, they're great questions and it's a little bit of a life story, but yeah. I, happen, I happen to be a real believer because of my life and the incredibly coincidental things that have happened to me. And um, I've learned to believe that coincidence is magical coincidence. Hmm. Coincidence is coincidence. And so um, I, I was always singing as a child and I was in glee club and concert choir and, and did those types of singing. And I was a majorette in high school. So I was a twirler and, you know, in front of the band, you know, the, the marching band. And we always had bands in town, but I didn't, I played many, I, I, try, I, I studied many instrument and play none. I have to, my voice is my instrument. That's what yeah. it is. <laughs> but in any case, I believe that we're being led and I have had, I have been led in my life. So because of, um, I went to, um, well, I went to Southampton College in Long Island. And the reason I went to Southampton College in Long Island is because I got up high, out of high school by the skin of my teeth. And um, I had a wonderful mentor from the time I was, oh, I think I was a junior. Her name was Lillian Caprice. And she took me under her wing. She wasn't my dean. She was the dean and the other part of the alphabet. And I would get kicked out of class because I was a bit of a clown and uh, <laughs> hey, two, 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 two things real quick you're talking to you're in good company when it comes to that and secondly almost all of my favorite teachers were people that i didn't have as actually teachers so i totally get it i, I we resonate in two fronts i love it well you know if i could if i could apologize to my original geometry teacher <laughs> who's long gone i i always say you know uh, forgive me you know but yeah. <laughs> I was acting. I was I was acting out, and that's what was going on. And you know, so um, I uh, Miss Caprice got a few of us into Southampton College, which is at the end of Long Island, it's the Hamptons. But this is back in 1966 when the Hamptons were like still wild. There were still potato fields out there, and you know, it was gorgeous. You know, it wasn't shishi the way it is now, and you know, very very uh, you know a lot of people you're but, saying you're uh, saying people who dump on boatloads of money into an air a beautiful area and make it yuppity is not the most beautiful form of nature 
Well, I'm, I'll, I'll leave that up to you to, to say it like that. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I <laughs> drew too no. far to conclusion on that one. <laughs> well, the, you know, the, the Hamptons are beautiful. I mean, the ocean is beautiful. I love, you know, I love Montauk. I love Southampton. It's just, it's really beautiful. But in any case, I went there when it was still wild. I mean, you know, wild land, wild property. Very beautiful. So uh, my father, uh, whatever, he didn't, it wasn't a state school. He pulled me out of the school and I was still under my father's thumb uh, when I was turning 19. And uh, my sister was the art teacher at New Paltz High School. That's upstate. It's about, it's about 100 miles up. It's, it's in the Shawangunk Mountains, New Paltz. Very, another beautiful area, Ulster County. And uh, it's where a lot of uh, um, climbers go and hikers. So Minnewaska, Lake Minnewaska and Mohonk Mountain. Very, very beautiful. So she said, come up here. They just uh, built a new uh, community college uh, at, in a rural area that had been in Kingston. And Kingston was the original uh, capital of New York before Albany. It's also very uh, historical. So I transferred my credits and I went to Ulster County Community College and I took speech because I wanted to take drama, but they didn't have drama then. And I took speech and my speech teacher became another mentor. I've had these wonderful mentors that have guided me. And she loved my voice and she loved my very outspoken talks that I would give my in public speaking. And she uh, referred me to, to produce a television show there, called, and, um, which they hadn't had. And I went up anchoring and producing, writing and producing a, a television show and I called it Look In. Because in those days, we had the lovin's, the happenings, and the beings, and I called it lookin'. And I chose the music, and I, I, you know, brought the artist on board and did the logo. And anyway, I had this wonderful television show. It was kind of satisfying. Mm -hmm. Then I was going to go to New Paltz, State University of New Paltz, which is in the next town, couple towns over. And I was promised to get in, and I, I was working. I put myself through that school as a waitress in a resort, Williams Lake. And I wound up not getting into New Paltz by a 10th of a point. Maybe I got a, like a 2.9. I was supposed to get, I don't even remember. So, <laughs> Again, you know, you're it, in great company. <laughs> you know, I'm I really, we're, we're being led. You know, I know I'm giving you some details, but these are really important. And so that summer, which was the summer of 69, okay, 1969, that's Woodstock Festival. And I happened where I lived up in Ulster County, we used to hang in Woodstock, you know, Bob Dylan lived up there, the band was up there, you know, they had made the, the, the album Big Pink. I mean, you know, this was, these were those days. And um, uh, I didn't get into New Paltz and my friends from Southampton, whom I was still friends with, were all gonna live together in Southampton in this two floor up motel and room. So I went out to Southampton for the summer and um, waitressed, waitress at a steakhouse that Henny Youngman owned in East Hampton, and then waitressed at night, overnight at Southampton Diner. These are really like known places, right? And at the end of the summer, one night, late July, I was, I was turning 21. I had graduated from Ulster County, had a two year degree. Um, one night, this guy, Barney McFadden, whom I was very close with, whom I hadn't seen since Southampton, tall, dark, handsome, black Irish, you know, blue eyes, black hair, came looking for some girlfriend. <laughs> and I happened to be home. I don't know why I was home, but it's I do know why I was home, because I was supposed to meet up with Barney. 
And Barney saw me and he said, and we had been very warm with each other, not boyfriend, girlfriend, just, you know, really like he dug me and I dug him when I was at Southampton. And he said, Nina, where have you been? And I told him the story that I just told you. And we sat on the steps and looked. it was a gorgeous late summer, well, July night. And he said to me at the end of the story, he said, well, Nina, what are you going to do? And I realized, you know, I was going to be 21 in like three weeks. And I said, I don't know. He says, well, what do you want to do, Nina? What do you really want to do? And he knew me to be a singer because I was always singing in the Rascaller and, you know, I was singing all kinds of Motown stuff. And he, I said, well, I want to be an actress. And he says, well, don't you know what I'm doing? I'm going to the best acting school in New York. And I'm sitting with the, a master teacher. I didn't even know what a master teacher was. Yeah. And, and I didn't, you know, this is 1969. You know, I was 20 years old going on 21. And I didn't know anything about acting. And he said, you have to write to Sanford Meisner. And, you have, and he gave me the address of the school. And in those days, we had little typewriters. I had my portable typewriter. And he made me promise. And I wrote the letter. And a week later, I got a phone call saying, you have to come into New York and meet Mr. Meisner because he's going to Beckley. He's going on his vacation. And I had what you call the famous interview with Sanford Meisner. And the rest is history. That is amazing. I mean, also not to mention just like what an iconic, you know, kind of the kind of the the, the boyfriend little crush thing or whatever you want to call it. Not to yeah, mention, yeah. he's the one of all people who makes the introduction to get you get you started and all this coming together. I mean, I, I love it. I there's got to be like I feel like that's like a, that's like a movie in the making, that whole story leading up to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and there's so many other, well, let, let me jump, you know, but you know, uh, Barney in the Meisner work, it's first year program and second year program. And this was a conservatory. And I did go to the Playhouse, neighborhood Playhouse School of the Theater. I did go to the Playhouse for a year and study with Sanford Meisner. San, we called him Mr. Meisner, but they called him Sandy Meisner. And, um, and Barney was in the second year. So I got to be very friendly with a few of the students in the second year just because of Barney. But first year students did not, you know, mingle with second year students. But I did. Of course not. Of, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like this. So which also led me to my destiny. So um, the, the second year, I took my second year program with William Esper, Bill Esper, who was very close. And he had the Meister program. And he, he later... This is the 70s. He later um, established the Meister program at Rutgers University, the BFA, MFA program, very, very famous. And uh, uh, Lloyd Williamson uh, developed a movement with, uh, based on the Meister work at Rutgers University. This is New Jersey, Brunswick, New Jersey. And uh, then and I studied with Bill professionally. And then um, I had been singing because when I was at the Playhouse, one of my very close male friends who is a brother to me to this day, Peter Gatto. He knew I was always singing. He knew I wanted singing lessons. My father hadn't let me have them. And um, because of money, really, it, was, it had to do with expense, you know. Um, and uh, he introduced me to my musical mentor. And on my lunch hour at the Playhouse my first year, I would go to see... Uh, Capi, C-A-P-P-I, Ronaldo Capalupo. He's not alive anymore. And he became my musical mentor because he became very excited with my voice and the way I sang and my feeling for songs, these American standards. And so um, the second year, the third year after Bill Esper, um, 
Morty, uh, Cappy's friend, Mordecai Lawner, who lived in the same building with his wife, Eugenia, he came back from Carnegie Mellon and he, he had been teaching at Carnegie Mellon, which is in Pittsburgh. And he had helped establish the Meisner program there. And because I was close with Morty and knew, he knew me as a singer, I left Bill Esper after my second year and I took my master or my third year when I became a professional actress and started going out and acting. That's what I mean uh, with Morty. So I'm a Meisner trained actress um, and um, studied for most of my 20s with these three master teachers. So you opened with or not open with, but you mentioned, obviously you've, you've just always been a singer and always, always sang. So, um, uh -huh. for, uh, consider your, consider yourself speaking to a very dumb, uneducated, uh, or, uh, uh individual, right. but I'm going to ask questions because I know some, some audience members are going to be wa wondering this, but like, so when you go into a musical acting performance, et cetera, does your brain think towards the music? Does your brain think towards the acting or is it some combination of the both and they're not even separated? Oh, it's a combination of both. And, you know, um, let me tell you a little more because this will lead into this. Um, this is great. Keep going. Don't, the, well, the, details, the details are amazing. So don't feel, keep rolling oh, with this. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, um, I, I did a lot of acting. For, I was a non-union actor until I was about 24, 25. And by the way, I became a union actor. Back to my idea, back to my thought that I'm, I believe that we're, we're, on a, we're on our paths. We're being led. But you have to go towards something. I always tell my students, you have to move towards something. And not all of us are lucky enough to have a passion. I was born with a passion. My family had passion. You know, I feel for... Um, young people that don't have a passion. Um, but we're very, very lucky. I, I think it's a very, it's a great fortune to have a passion for something. Um, what kind of success you have, that also is up to luck. But let me go back. So um, I, I, I started, I, I wanted to sing. And even though um, the, the, the first Broadway musical I ever saw and the only Broadway musical I ever saw until I was 21 and went to the Playhouse, even though I lived so close to New York, we didn't have money, um, was Bye Bye Birdie. And I had a very good friend um, on the next block, my friend Chicky, and her sister Bonnie was a model. And Bonnie took Chicky and I and we sat in box seats one summer and took us to see Bye Bye Birdie. And that's where the expression, the bug bit me. And we went backstage and I met Paul Lind and Cheetah Rivera was in it and, and uh, Dick Van Dyke was in it. I, mean, I, I don't remember meeting them, but I, I remember this being backstage. So I always wanted to be a singer. And Bye Bye Birdie, um, Charlie Strauss wrote Bye Bye Birdie we'll get to him. <laughs> he came into my life when I was 30 years old, 31. It's crazy. It's, it's, um, we're being led. That so, was last, that was last year, right? Yeah, that's right. That, <laughs> that, that's, that's so cute. So, um, well, I, I really believe in age. I'm very grateful to, to, to be uh, aged. I really am, you know, but anyway, uh, what happened was, uh, Cappy, my musical mentor, uh, had been in the army 
And he had actually been with the Gordon Jenkins Orchestra. And when I wanted to start singing in clubs when I was about 23, you know, after I'd been singing with him for a couple of years, he told me he really didn't want to do clubs because he had done a lot of this stuff, you know, like smoky rooms. But um, he he went and accompanied me. I did Catch a Rising Star. A lot of people started to Catch a Rising Star on First Avenue. And then I started doing these clubs and cabarets. And then... I, in my 20s, later on, I wound up working with another pianist who was a recording person, and I became a songwriter. I, I became a songwriter when I was about, I think, 26. I don't remember. And um, what happened was uh, he recorded my first songs for me, but one time he was accompanying me, and he said to me, you know, Nina, you're going somewhere where I can't go with you, the way he, his style of playing. He says, but I know someone. And he introduced me to my next accompanist, who was my accompanist um, and um, close friend and confidant for uh, the next uh, 23 to 24 years. And that was Stuart Hemingway. And Stuart was a blind man um, who lived on West 75th Street, later moved back up, moved up to old Greenwich where I would go to rehearse with him for my gigs. And Stuart and I uh, worked together for 23 years. And um, he, um, I would start, I would bring my music, my song in and I would sing it to him maybe halfway through. And by halfway through, he was playing, he was courting it and playing it. So we, I wrote the songs and I wrote the lyrics, but he courted them. And then I would steer him in what direction I wanted to go in. And we um, we did. Uh, I did twenty three years of cabaret singing all over New York, and I did some in California. But I and Stuart and I went to Europe together, and Germany and Italy. And um, he since um, deceased, but uh, he was a phenomenal uh, jazz pianist, and he was blind, and he didn't want to have a cane or a dog. He finally got a cane, and um, he taught children how to play piano by ear, and that's how he made a living. He was very independent, very independent. Um, and um, uh, he uh, he studied with uh, Marion McPartland, the famous jazz pianist, and John Mahegan, who was also very famous. And his his idol was um, Bill Evans. And I got to meet Marion and corresponded with Marion until she died and saw her in many a, a gig, many a show. And I did meet Bill Evans um, at the Vanguard in the 1970s in what we call the, the kitchen. You always, the musicians are always in the kitchen. And I remember that moment very well. I have no picture of it, but so um, Stuart and I were, uh, he was my accompanist. Yeah. So I'm going to ask um, a very cliche question, but cliches are cliches for a reason. Um, mm -hmm. Two, two part, well, two similar questions, but um, one's about you and one's about kind of your, your uh, history and all the performances you've seen. So first question is Nina, out of all the performances from end to end that you did, which one would an audience member say that was the greatest thing that I ever watched for you personally that you perform, acted in, sang in? 
whatever the gamut, which would you say is like the best, the best that you put together? I'm sure they're all that way, but if you can remember, no, one- <laughs> not necessarily. Well, you know, I had a, I had a, I usually had a room, a singer has a room and there were rooms then. So I don't know whether I could really answer that. I've had some highlights. Um, I want to go back to some, I'm going to go to that, but I want to go back to something that Stuart Hemingway, yeah. my yeah. blind pianist, um, he had played with many uh, great blues artists and all kinds of artists. He was white. He, he wasn't, he wasn't African-American. He wasn't black. He was white because a lot of people like, you know, think, you know, you, but he had played with, um, uh, he knew Doc Pomas, who was a very famous songwriter. Doc Pomas wrote Save the Last Dance for Me and many Elvis Presley hits, actually. Yeah. And he, inter- he introduced me to Doc. And uh, Doc, beca- even though I wasn't the type of singer that Doc really uh, connected with, and Doc discovered certain singers, because I'm not a blues singer. He liked the blues, Doc did. Um, Doc is the one who told me to go back to this question that you asked before. He said that the best singers are good actors. And um, you asked that question about what comes first. And I said, well, it's both. But because singing is just automatic for me, you know, melodies, (laughs) I lose my, you know, I'm older. So my lyrics, I have to go over them. But (laughs) of course, it's certain songs that you've sung for thousands of times. One song that that I've sung for, you know, years is the very thought of you it's on my website you could hear me sing the very thought of you and Stuart's playing it um and i i that's a song i've sung hundreds of times and um but every time you sing a song that you know so well that you get very deep and immersed in you do always sing it for with a fresh point of view um because um, it's just like every day the sun comes up, but every day is different. Hmm. That's amazing. I, I love that. And uh, uh, I, even in a little bit of my youth, still can't remember songs, speak, you know, speaking engagements, talk. So uh, I, I think that's quite a right if you need to re- re-look at lyrics every once in a while or practice them every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, yeah. Or, yeah, more so than ever now. But it, but um, anyway, that that that's that. And then, what's that last thing you just asked me? Um, uh, well, related to out of all the performances you have oh, yeah. done, what would you yeah, say yeah. is the one that you were like, "Yep, that was it." And I, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of amazing experiences, but just out of all the ones that you felt like you really, really, really just knocked it out of the park. Oh, I don't know. I I just don't think I could. I don't think I can. There's not that. But I. But but I'll tell you two things. I did sing acapella the national anthem at shea stadium in 1991 to like thousands of people no way and it was was truly a nerve-wracking experience oh gosh i think i think speaking in front of a couple hundred hr people is tough that's totally different (laughs) yeah (laughs) but um but it's a great story and um I, i that was really exciting and all my friends came in. They were screaming from the. From it was funny. It was really funny. And um, and then the other most um, exciting experience was Stuart and I went to um, Europe together in 
uh, we went to Germany because his sister was, um, she, she was part of the American government and with immigration there. And she lived there for a few years. And she um, had a private party for us that I entertained the way I would do a show, you know, for 45 minutes or an hour. And then uh, after we were in Hamburg, that's where we were for a few, uh, uh, no, we were in Frankfurt, excuse me, we're in Frankfurt. Then we went to Munich, to München, to see my friend Gillian Scalisi, who was a well-known singer in Germany. She lives in, in uh, South Carolina with her husband and her children and grandchildren now. But um, she was rehearsing Oliver. She had been on Broadway in Chorus Line. She was rehearsing Oliver in German. And we went to that rehearsal. And then we took the train from Munich to um, Rome because uh, Stuart had a friend there that whom I know very well, also a singer, and her Italian family lived there. And um, we went and stayed there for two weeks. And one of the reasons we went to, it, to Rome was because uh, I had gone back to college when I was at Fordham at Lincoln Center and gotten my degree in theater arts. And, one of, and I wrote a musical that I, Gucci Girls, it was called Gucci Girls in 1979. And one of my, my lighting designer had gone, who was Italian American, had gone to Italy to live. And when she came back, she said, Nina, there's a club in Florence, Firenze. And I told him about you. And he said, oh, have her come over and sing. So Stuart and I, when we got to Italy, we had this intention. We're going to go to Florence and, we're, and I'm going to sing there. So we took the train to Florence and I had booked us into a hotel for the overnight. And we went looking for uh, Il Sipario. That was the name of it, which means theatrical curtains. And we got there, which after a long walk and we always had a dinner and drank a bottle of wine, but we, we got to this Il Sipario club and we walked down these steps and it was packed. But it was just like a cabaret, you know, it was packed. And um, I, um, uh, we, we sat down and the waitress came over and she was Australian. So she spoke English and she said, you know, what would you like? And uh, we told her, and we, and then I said, is, is Enrico Dirito here? And she said, oh, yes, yes, he, he's behind the counter. He's behind the bar there. He's the bartender. So I said, Stuart, I'll be right back. So I got up and I'm tall. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm relatively tall. I'm five, seven. And I walked over to uh, the bar and Enrico was at the other end. He's not quite my height. And he sees me and he walks over and I said, Enrico, Enrico Dirito. He says, "See." Sí. I said, uh, Enrico, uh, um, sono Nina, Nina Murano. He says, Nina Murano, you mean the Nina Murano from New York? I said, the, <laughs> the, the, the singer from New York? I said, yes, yes. He says, you going to sing tonight? I said, yes, I will sing tonight. Okay. And then he, there, there had been a guitarist and a, a piano in the middle. And then and we wound up doing a whole uh, set like a 45 minute set when we got up Stuart and I, just Stuart and I. And the place went crazy. It, it was really fabulous. It was just such an, I never forget this night. And, you know, they, they just loved it. This American singer was there. And, yeah. and I, one thing I remember is I was singing Stevie Wonder's um, uh, Lately, which I sing very dramatically. And 
I remember looking at the end of the uh, room and there was a young man. He was really young. I mean, and he was leaning over. And even though I was singing it, as I told you, my way, uh, he was singing every word with me. And I'll never forget that image. It's fantastic. Mm. And anyway, everybody left. And Enrico and his business partner sat down and we drank Anazettes until three o'clock in the morning. I don't even know how I got Stuart back to the hotel. I mean, it was unbelievable. We were smashed, you know? <laughs> so um, my next phone call is going to be to uh, good old Nilly. And I'm going to say, we need to make a movie about... Uh, a uh, a Nina from New York entering a bar like this because I feel like that is just the most amazing scene out of a movie waiting to happen. So no matter what, I'm gonna. That's my phone call. So whether you like it or not, we're making this happen. <laughs> well, oh well, all right, okay. I, 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 there's there's other stories to tell you actually, but well, let me jump to this other story. Okay, since so two things. Let let me go back to Enrico. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, um, two. Th um, Three years ago, um, I turned 70. And uh, as you can tell, I'm, a, I'm an energetic 70. And, you know, I wouldn't even say that, but my students say that to me. But um, my friend, uh, she rent, uh, I have a friend um, from Ulster County. She's half Ukrainian, a Ukrainian friend. We're like, it's almost like being childhood friends in a way. Um, she rented a villa in uh, Tuscany. And at the same time, I worked with Bruce Weber for years and years and years, um, the photographer. I used to go on the A&F shoots and uh, coach uh, the young, you know, while he was shooting models or they would, I would do acting exercises with them. In any case, Bruce is a documentarian and he had made a fabulous documentary on Robert Mitchum, the actor Robert Mitchum, called Nice Girls, uh, nice Girls Stay for Breakfast. Don't stay for breakfast. Nice girls don't stay for breakfast. <laughs> oh, oh God, I, 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 that's, that's not good. I feel like that that but, mix up has a lot of interpretations. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, all right. That's good. Right. You, you you saved me. So so anyway, Bruce was it was being shown at the Lido at the uh, Venice Film Festival in the, at the same time, and he knew. And Bruce is very good to me and very generous to me, and he invited me to the premiere. Uh, at the Lido. I had seen the documentary in New York many times, three times. It's fantastic. Great documentary on Robert Mitchum. And um, so I went from Florence to, uh, to Venice and on my own at, because uh, my name is Murano, like the island of Murano where they blow glass outside of Venice. That is my name. My, my Italian relatives are from the south, but but my name is Murano, M-U-R-A-N-O. And I'd never been to Murano. And he knew that, Bruce knew that. So he, he, I went to the Lido and I went to this opening and, oh, Bruce, he introduced me to all the Italians in the audience. Oh, it, you know, he's just so generous with his descriptions and everything. <laughs> but so then I, so then I, I was there for three days and then I came back to Florence just and I stayed overnight and I had it on my mind that I wanted to go back to Il Cipario. Now we're talking, where are we? We're talking, you know, we're in 2022, right? And this was the year of uh, uh, 2018. 
and um, September. And I booked myself into a hotel and I went looking for Il Cipadia. I knew the address, Cinquante Dui Via Faenza. That's it, that's it. And anyway, I found it. I got lost just the way Stuart and I got lost, but I finally found it. And I and it wasn't there anymore. It was a different thing. It had a big ice cream cone outside and tables. And, and I walked down these little slate steps. And I looked in and there were all these beautiful liquor bottles, all these different colors on the glass shelves. And there was an espresso machine and there was, you know, pastries and everything. And I walk in and there's a man behind um, a cash register. And I'm kind of like in a daze thinking like, how could this be LC Cardio, you know? And then he looked up, this man looked up to me and he came around and uh, I have silver hair now. And, and he, he came around to me and he said, and he looked at me and I said, um, he asked me, you know, could he help me? And I said, um, excuse me, is this, was this LC Cardio? And he says, si, si, LC Cardio. And I said, oh, um, I, uh, I'm Nina, you know, Mar- I, I sang here once. He said, Nina, Nina Murano. <laughs> I, said, I, said, I said, Enrico, Enrico. He said, see. And we <laughs> hugged each other so tight. This is some, I hadn't seen him since 1986. We hugged each other so tight. I broke the glass. We broke the glasses around his chest. He says, oh, I have a lot of, pe- I have a lot of them. And I went up. Yeah. So, you know, that's that story you know? that is so good i love that <laughs> isn't that isn't that isn't that beautiful we uh, yeah we need i think we need to make uh we need to make a movie on that for sure um so the um the i have a two-part question and also i think we're going to need to do two volumes of this podcast because there's just so many good stories that i want to i want to i want to ask you but the um the out of all the students, out of all the people that you've taught, out of all the amazing folks that you've performed in front of, if you had a choice of what your legacy is or was or will be, what would you want that to be? Uh, well, I, you know, I'm very attached to some of my songs. I wrote, uh, I've written, you know, I saw. I wrote a song called "Tell Me How You Feel," which um, I used to end my act with, and 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 I also am the co-lyricist on a children's musical uh, called "Zephyr's Pond" with Frank Bassani. He wrote this story, and I'm a co-lyricist. And "Zephyr's Pond" that that's I, I would really like my music to be um, out there. Hmm. It's really important to me, but I am known now as a teacher and um, uh, as a, as a Meisner teacher and, and, and as an acting coach. And um, it's been the most rewarding part of my life. Honestly, it has. And I, I didn't intend to teach, you know, we could talk about that another time, but I, I kept putting it off. I did all, I've worked in everything, all kinds of production. And finally I gave over to teaching and that's how I met how that's how Bruce Weber found me. And that's how um, I, one more story before we go, is my second year of teaching, which I had resisted for many years, I had started my own studio. And one night, my favorite student was late. And for 
very serious reasons, which I won't go into. We're, we're, he's, he, I'm close with him to this day, Mark Bartolomeo. And um, he, um, uh, I had to get the props out of a closet. Now, this is another thing why I'm ending with, this is what I believe that we're being led. Why I didn't get the props out of the closet for the students, uh, you know, before, while he was late, I was just talking to them about life because that's what I do. Um, I didn't because this is what was supposed to happen. I went to the closet, the closet was locked. I had to go to the office. This is in a basement building on 42nd Street. It doesn't even exist any longer. And there was an Asian girl in there. And I said, you know, could you get the keys for me? And she went and got the keys. She came around and she tried to open up the closet. Now I'm getting anxious. And I said, let me do it. So I took control. I took the keys. And she said four things to me. She said, you teach Meisner technique? I said, yes, I do. She said, my mother teaches Meisner technique in Tokyo. I said, how interesting. She said, yes, my mother has guests sometimes. I said, oh, I'd love to go to Tokyo. I don't think I ever thought about going to Tokyo, honestly. And she said, it's true. And the fourth thing she said was, my mother studied with Sanford Meisner. Now, Meisner trained Academy Award winners, Thornton Gregory Peck, Joanne Woodward, Robert Duvall, you know, I mean, he, you know, Mary Steenburgen. He's, you know, and I, I said, well, I studied with Sanford Meisner, but you can tell, Matt, I'm friendly. I, I said, well, I, I studied with Sanford Meisner. What's your mother's name? And she said, Yoko, Yoko Narahashi. And in the deepest recess of my memory, Matt, Yoko and I had been in the same class at the neighborhood playhouse. We were thick as thieves. Every day, Yoko would say, I love you, Nina, and say, I love you, Yoko. And we never thought we'd be separated. <laughs> and here we are 27 years later, which is, by the way, this is 24 years ago. 27 years later, I was reunited with my beloved Yoko, who had, who is a renowned writer, producer, director in Japan. And she started this acting school called United Performer Studio. And this is her daughter, Liana, who had just graduated from NYU. How about that? And she uh, brings me over. And I've been to Japan six times because of Liana and Yoko. That is one of those like goosebumps sort of the world, <laughs> the world comes the world comes back and collide. I mean that what a, what a, what a what a beautiful story. I mean seriously, what an amazing it, story, isn't it, Matt? And you know what? You, you, uh, that's what I, I started telling you. I'm a believer. I, <laughs> in Taipei, in I told my students I have translators, you know, and they love it. I say I'm a believer. You know, <laughs> I, I can love, tell you, you know, yeah, I I'm love a believer. That. I love that. Mm -hmm. um, Nina, one of my favorite questions on the planet is uh, what gets people out of bed in the morning? And for you, um, obviously, from, you know, a love for singing to, to, to acting, to songwriting, to teaching, right? And yes. to the impact that you've had on so many lives, whether it was a full-time career, or a passion project, or, hey, I just like, I just want to be better, whatever it may be, you've obviously impacted tons and tons of lives. But for you, what, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, a purpose. I, I do believe you have purpose is really purpose, purpose. You have to have a purpose every day, something purposeful. Yeah, purpose. But um, I love life. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I've been very, I've been blessed with being a positive, uh, optimistic person, even since I'm a child. I'm moody, you know, <laughs> I'm, dr I'm dramatic, I'm emotional. 
But, well, but I, I, I would be a little concerned as a, a, a world-class actor if you weren't a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. So um, I, I will say in the, I hope the least weird way possible, you have a voice that I just love listening to. And I haven't said that about any podcast guest to date, but seriously, it's, um, I can just, I can just tell both with your enthusiasm for the way you tell stories and love for life, but also just literally the gift you have. I mean, it's, it's amazing. So thank you. Oh, thank you. That's, thank you. Thank you, Matt. That's really beautiful. You really, you really get me. And yes. And, and that's also another great fortune. I was born with this voice. I mean, it's cultivated because I went to conservatory, I went to the playhouse, but, but really it's my voice, you know? And, um, I know we're going to wrap this up, but I, I, if there is a next time, whenever, how I met Millie Rafai is also total coincidence. Oh, I mean, gosh, you just teased up to volume two, because now I am excited about that one, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 That is yeah. that is so good. Um, oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. Nina, for people that want to follow the work that you've done um, if they want to follow along with some of the, 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 the coaching and teaching that you've done, is there a good place for people to either learn more about you or communicate? What, what, what would be the best way for people just to learn more about all that you've done and what you're doing? Well, uh, my website, ninamorano.com. Yeah. I'd love it. Perfect. Um, I, my, my music's on it. My student, my form, my students, you know, some testimonials, you know, I, I try to keep up with it. I'm a little behind, but yeah, all of that stuff is on there. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, Nina, well, seriously, this has been an absolute gift. Um, and I, I just can't thank you enough for this. I can't thank you enough for the stories and there will definitely be a volume two to this podcast because I think we have a whole uh, slew of stories that we need to tell and need to hear more from you, but seriously, Nina, thank you so much. Oh, Matt, thank you very much. I'm, I'm, I'm just so grateful for this. And thank you for letting me go on about this stuff. It's, it's, I just hope it inspires someone, really. It definitely does. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Be well, hey? You just listened to an amazing episode on the Matt Baxter Show. It had nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the guests that I have and the stories that we get to tell and the smack talking we get to have. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that you've listened to, feel free to su- subscribe on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast. Check us out at themattbaxtershow.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Matt C. Baxter, Twitter, or Facebook as well too. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, whether it's through an email on the website or whether it's through any of the social platforms. I do my best to get back to people as soon as I can. But thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoy. Feel free to send feedback in any way. And don't be afraid to share the Map Action Show. We're very excited to have you as a listener and hope you continue to listen as well. Thanks a ton. Bye-bye. <music>